You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 115 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am very well, thank you, Valerie. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I've actually got anything more to add to that than, yeah, I'm, okay. still, I'm still here. Let's Fair just, enough. Yeah, that's a good start, right? Yeah, it's a very good start. <laughs> we are in the middle of the holidays, though, so, oh. you know, actually, I might be overstating a little. Yeah, right. Maybe I should just say I'm well. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but, but challenged, perhaps. I'm just, yeah. All, All right. right. Well, I'm let's. Just, I'm coping. Let's put it that way. <laughs> let's move straight on into it then, shall we? <laughs> let's just do that. What a good idea. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And we want to give a big shout out to Jesse. Well, it's Jesse13E, but Jesse, who has left us a review and rating on iTunes and has said highly recommended. And Jesse oh. says, I've been addicted to this podcast for a while now and recommend it to everyone I know who writes or aspires to. Thank you for sharing your time and insights. I love the word of the week, the interviews and the banter. Best wishes and thanks, Jess. Short and sweet, but very, very nice. Thank you Thank so you, much, Jess. Jess. Did you say that? She loves the word of the week. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think you've just got your own fan club out there, just all about the word of the week. I, you made my day, Jess. Okay. <laughs> made my day. But let's plunge into the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week, shall we? Let's. Now, I came up with an interesting, well, I discovered an interesting link on the Huffington Post, and I liked it because it's called Five Entrepreneurial Tips for Authors Who Want to Up Their Game." Now, it's written by Brooke Warner, who's just published a book called Green Light Your Book, How Writers Can Succeed in the New Era of Publishing. And there is a new era of publishing, essentially. A lot of things have changed compared to even just 10 years ago. And um, just some of her entrepreneurial tips I thought were really good. Now, the first one is treat your book like a product, not a baby. And I think that this is really, really true and really useful advice because once it's out there, it is a product and you and you kind of need to think about it as if you're running a business and this is the product that you're selling. So you need to think about not only creating a great product, which presumably you have, but also how, you, how that product is going to get into the hands of the final consumer, how that product is going to be marketed, how that product is going to have and be its own brand. So I think that that's really, really important. Her second entrepreneurial tip is become a content monster, (laughs) which means produce as much content as you can in the months leading up to and after your book release, which Mm -hmm. I also think is really great advice and it reflects some of the advice that you give in your course, Al, uh, build your author platform and and it absolutely works and I think if you ignore it, it is at your peril. 
Mm, absolutely. Mm. I agree. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing. And I think um, her tip, her third tip, which is about learning about the business side of publishing, yes. is really important. I, I think you need to think of yourself as part of an industry. And so if you're part of an industry, you need to understand how that industry works. And as you go into different aspects of that industry, things change. Like I found it like my switch from nonfiction and writing sort of adult fiction into writing for children took me into a whole sector of the publishing industry that I didn't know before. Mm. And I didn't understand, I think, until I found my way into that um, particular section, what I learned very, very quickly was the importance of booksellers in selling books and the importance of them, that that hand selling of a book, particularly um, I I found with children because so many people go in going, I need a book for a 10-year-old. And yes. that's, you know, I'm going to a birthday party. I'm yes. doing a whatever. I've got a, a, or, you know, I'm the aunt of a four-year-old and I have no idea what to buy my, to buy my niece or whatever. Yep. Those sorts of things are really important. The other thing I never understood until I got into this, um, uh, this sector of the publishing industry was the absolute vital importance of teacher librarians. And I've talked about this before with children's uh, publishing, but you just, you cannot underestimate how important, you know, these people are and that fostering those relationships with these people um, is very, very important. I go to my local schools and I talk to my local teacher librarians on a regular basis and I'm not looking at necessarily like a lot of the schools down here cannot afford to have author visits. Um, It's a fairly socially, demographically challenged area, (laughs) Um, economically challenged rather. Um, So I go. And and I I meet my local teacher librarians and I meet my local kids and I appreciate the fact that these sorts of things are important as far as particularly, you know, as a local author, putting myself into that space. And those sorts of things as part of the industry are really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very important. Mm. And it's so true because when I'm buying for that age, uh, you know, often children of my friends and that sort of thing, if I'm not if I'm not buying the Map Maker Chronicles trilogy. Which, of course, you buy every time, <laughs> which even for the two-year-olds, yes. Is, well, no, not for the two-year-olds. Come on, Val. Uh, I'll grow into them. <laughs> I will always ask the bookseller. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm buying for a whatever age, boy or girl, what do you recommend? So that is so true. It is very important. The bookseller plays a very important role and it is very important to understand the the industry because then you understand the nuances or of about how or why your book is selling. Absolutely. I just, I really want to bring up the last point of this before we move on. Self-promote in an authentic way. Oh, yes. Now, the number of authors that I see are like, oh, I don't want to self-promote, self-promoting's icky and I'm not going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm thinking, well, if you don't promote your work, no one's going to do it for you. Yep. And this is the thing. You're not self-promoting. You're promoting your product. You're promoting your work. And if you do it in the right way, instead of belting buy my book tweets at people, yeah. which I have just recently unfollowed an author on Twitter for yeah. that very thing. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, you have to think about making those relationships and those creating those networks, helping people out where you can, those sorts of things. If you do it in the way that you would do, I don't know, you know, I, I, I find it sort of... You, you can self-promote without being salesman-like. I think yeah. that's probably what I'm trying to say. And that business that we were talking about earlier about the content marketing stuff, such an important way to help you to self-promote. Without you, you know, if you're if you're giving people something as well, 
then you get promoted just alongside it almost. Yeah, absolutely. That's mm-hmm. a great tip as well. Mm-hmm. So let's now move on to our next link of the week. And this is from Education Week Teacher. And it's called English Teachers Hip Hop Curriculum Gets Students Writing. Mm-hmm. And I this caught my attention because, as you may remember from last week's episode, my new obsession is Hamilton the Musical. Yes. And uh, Hamilton, there's a lot of hip hop, there's a lot of rap in it, and it's also a traditional musical in a very Broadway sense, uh, but there is a lot of wordplay and it's it's become, I think, the new office obsession as well. Mm-hmm. And so I've been exploring the world of hip hop and rap mm. because of this purpose. And this was an interesting post because what this teacher did was, of course, you know, you study your poets, you study your Kenneth Slesser, your Emily Dickinson, your, you know, your Keats and all of that. But she's brought hip hop and the wordplay and the, the, the incredible verbiage that's in rap and hip hop into the classroom to hopefully encourage um, students to understand literature mm. and uh, I'm interested to know I don't know that much about whether this goes on in Australian schools but uh, I'm interested to know if anyone knows whether th- this kind of text is studied on a regular basis in Australian schools I don't know, Do you know? I'm not sure I wouldn't I'm not sure regular necessarily but I, I think that um, that clever teachers are bringing it in I encourage my boys to listen to good hip-hop and rap because they love wordplay mm. and I mean it's not easy sometimes finding it without the language and the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever um yes. but I love it like I, I think it's brilliant I love clever good rap and hip-hop is is poetry and yes, it, poetry. it should be treated as such and I, I like if you look at the number of the thing that fascinates me with with some of it is the number of words that they can get into a line that still makes sense yes. and and brings about an image and stuff yeah like some of the um there's a, a song that my boys particularly like it's called jimmy ricard it's by a band called draft it's all about the fact that this guy has been called paul and if his name was different, would his life be different? And he, he, you know, what if his name is Jimmy Ricard? And then this, he spins this entire story about how he'd be the king of the bar and all this. I mean, you know, probably not appropriate for a nine years old, for a nine year old. But they love it. They absolutely love it. And they, you know, we talk about the way that they get the number of words into a line and how the yeah. imagery comes through and stuff like that. And it's it's good. You know, it's, well, I think it's great for that sort of thing. You know, if you're looking for something where the words are appropriate, then go to Hamilton the Musical. Well, clearly. I'm, I'm actually, I hadn't actually realised that. Now, see, I'm taking it all back. I was making fun of you last week about your cursive writing of lyrics. Yes. Maybe now it's going to be me doing the same thing and you can yeah. all laugh at me. Well, because also it is about a historical event and you learn a lot about some, you know, pretty incredible historical characters and founding fathers of America, admittedly. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that I saw an interview with the lyricist and composer Lin-Manuel Miranda the other day and he was saying that because people the interview asked him so, so people you know yell at you down the street you know now that you're famous and they recognize you and stuff like that and he said not so much really what tends to happen is I'm walking down the street and people now yell out historical eras to me <laughs> Like suffragettes, (laughs) 1940s, (laughs) in the hope that he will turn them into a musical as well. 
<laughs> so quite it's just going to happen to you one day Val you're going to be walking along and someone's going to shout your word of the week at you out of a window <laughs> soporific <laughs> quite possibly nicotine quite, quite possibly <laughs> that would be hilarious be uh, all right so you have a link uh, about the art of video game writing. Oh, clearly we're very cool this week, Val. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> we've taken a leap up from cursive writing and musicals. <laughs> um, so the art of the video game writing is a link that I found on Aerogram Studio and it goes into, like it's a very, it's a relatively new area of writing. But, you know, as, as they say in this article, it's written by Brooke Mags. Mm. Imagine writing a story where the first thing the reader asks when they begin is, what do I do? And the answer could be one of or all of these things, explore, survive, observe, solve, form a strategy, make decisions. Because when someone plays a video game, that's what they do. They're sitting there, they've got their character you know, on the screen in front of them. They go left, they go right, they do whatever. What do they have to do? And it's um, an interesting thing because, you know, as I say, game writing is a type of storytelling where the reader is a player because the reader makes decisions all the way through. And I find it really, really interesting because it, it is like the kinds of games that we've got at the moment are like full length, full on movies. And there's that much going on in them that I think it's a really interesting area of writing. And I think it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. I think they're, they're saying that one of the skills that you need as a game writer, you have to be a problem solver an improviser and you have to be a collaborator because you're dealing, I guess it's a little bit like writing a movie um, or a play. There's a whole range of people involved but you also have to take into consideration the player yes. because they're the ones that drive the story as they go through. Um, they're not just sitting there observing as they are with a movie or with a, um, with a play. They're actually making the decisions as they go through. And I just thought it was a very interesting uh, article to read. If this is an area of, um, of writing that does interest you, uh, would definitely be worth having a look through. So it's just a little bit of an overview of the kinds of things you need to think about if you're writing a game. And, of course, it is a burgeoning industry, isn't it? Because it apart is. From it's a growth area. Massive yeah. area. Apart from the actual, you know, game writers, as you say, I was um, in Brisbane the other day and uh, I was in a hotel and the porter was helping me with my bags and I started chatting to him and his other job was he is a violinist and cellist and his other job is to write soundtrack-like music for video games. Wow. Yeah, he and he just has a quartet, so there's a there's a he's a, like a mini orchestra but four people he mainly works with and that's what they do for the bulk of their time when he's not doing his two shifts at the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating. That. And that's why you should always talk to people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I you know, you talk to that like there's a there's a guy down that works at my local Woolies and you know, I'm I'm the I'm that woman. I'm chatting away to the person at, you know behind the checkout every time having a chat. Um so we're chatting away one day and I discover that he's uh he's in his like eighty seventh year of uni. Um and he is a PhD student, but he has created some kind of heart uh, some kind of he's engineered some kind of heart thing mm-hmm. that um, is taking him is now taking him all around the world. I don't see him as often wow. anymore. Um, he's very clever and he's got all this stuff going on. And there he is, just doing the scanning at Woolies yes. just to get himself through uni. It is always worth talking to people. Fascinating, definitely. And you never know when your next story is going to come from. You don't. Mm-hmm. 
Let's move on to another link we've got. You've got from Bad Redhead Media. Oh, I love it. How could I not love Bad Redhead Media? Um, It's run by Rachel Thompson, and she is fantastic. I've interviewed her for my blog. She's very social media savvy. Um, She has two different accounts, one of which is Rachel Thompson and one of which is Bad Bad Redhead Media, where she specialises in social media for authors. So she's a great resource, really worth having a look at her website, Bad Red, you just think of me, badredheadmedia.com, and you'll find her. Um, but this is a, an interesting uh, guest post that she ran recently called Don't Make These Five Mistakes When Querying Agents and Publishers. Mm. And I just, um, again, just through my social media twirling, I know that these are the kinds of questions that come up a lot with people when they're querying um, agents and publishers with, you know, wanting to sell their manuscripts and stuff. And the first one is, I think, really, really important. Um, It is not to say anywhere in your query letter you've never read anything like this (laughs) because this is like a disaster call for an agent because if you say you've never read anything like this before, chances are they're going to think there's probably a reason for that. Nobody wants to read anything like this. The, the fact is that you, you want to write a book that people want to read. So yes. if you've written something that no one's ever read before and the chances are that they're never going to want to read it, then they, they might stop reading your query letter right there at that point. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, and the other thing to remember too, and this is, a, this is something that I've seen a little bit of recently too, is uh, this whole notion of do I put the entire plot into the query letter or do I mm. am I trying to? What you're trying to do in the query letter is to hook the reader. So you want to hook your agent or your publisher by saying, giving them a, this is your blurb. You want to sell the book to them. A synopsis is a full breakdown of everything that happens. And you do not leave dot, dot, dot at the end, you know, what might happen next. You give them chapter and verse, every single thing that goes on in that book. But you do it in about 400 words, which is not easy. Um, But your query letter is basically the, it's not a synopsis. You want to apply the less is more rule and you want to, it's a blurb. You're trying to sell the idea at this point. Okay. Um, What did you think, Val? Did you see anything in that that you thought was really interesting? Yeah, I thought it was great. And I think it's so important to um, research as much as you can before you pitch to an agent or publisher. Definitely. Yeah. And not only about that agent and publisher so that you're pitching relevant things, you know, so that if they only represent crime, you're not pitching them a romance kind of thing, mm. but also about the process and what you should include, you know, as you say, in your query letter, in your synopsis, what kind of timing you can expect. Uh, I think it's just so important not to go in cold because you only have one chance to make a first impression. And um, and I think one good thing that people can do is have a look at Natasha Lester's course, Pitch Your Novel, How to Attract Agents and Publishers, which is an on-demand course at the Writer's Centre, uh, because it goes through step-by-step on um, the kind of things that you need to do and the kind of things that you need to expect. But also, importantly, if you're thinking about pitching your novel, to get your timing right, Mm. not to do it too early. Like some people say to me, oh, should I just send them you know, it's not ready yet, but (laughs) and it's like, well, if it's not ready yet, then yeah, no. No. So, yeah, I I think it's important to do a lot of research before you actually start pitching so that you do it in the best way. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to uh, our uh, 
um, giveaway for this week, and mm-hmm. it is a five book pack. Ooh, I do love the five book pack. Yes. Now, these are some awesome female authors, and in the five book pack, you can win Rosetta by Alexandra Joel, who we've previously interviewed, and uh, Lady Helen and the Dark Days Club by Alison Goodman. Which I've heard really good things about. Yeah. I haven't read it myself, but I've heard really good things about it. Likewise, The Japanese Lover by Isabel Allende, Mm -hmm. The Beekeeper's Secret by Josephine Moon, and A Girl's Best Friend by Lindsay Kelk, who we've also (laughs) interviewed on the podcast. We have, and she was so funny. So there's there's five cracker books Mm. in this five-book pack, and entries close Monday, 1st of August. So in order to have your chance to win, go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. So writercentre.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, How to Get More Blog Readers, is ideal for anyone with a blog who would like to reach a bigger audience. In this self-paced course, you'll learn strategies to attract more traffic to your site. This includes how to create engaging headlines, SEO-friendly structure, using social media, attracting sponsors, and much more. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you can learn whenever it suits with 12 months access to all materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash readers. All right, let's move on to our word of the week this week. Right. (laughs) I'm poised. I'm poised on the edge of my seat. I am. Well, we kind of have two words because they're often mixed up. So I thought I would mention them both. And they are predilection and propensity. So they're very similar, don't you think? I would say predilection. Oh, sorry, is it, predilection. Is it definitely predilection? Oh, no, no, you, you are right. Sorry. Are I'm we just... having a pronunciation <laughs> situation here, <laughs> <laughs> A bit tired. Okay. Sorry. A predilection, predilection and, and propensity. propensity. Yes. Okay. All right. So predilection is almost the same as preference. So you might have a predilection for wearing black or a predilection for, as I do, peanut butter and cruskets. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Whereas... You propensity is slightly different in that it is more like an inclination or tendency. So someone might have a propensity to blame some other people for his mistakes oh. or a pre- propensity to make on-air gaffes that are demeaning to women. Perhaps. Gosh. Wonder who that might be. Wonder who that could know. be. But some people might have a propensity to do such things, mm. but particularly if they happen quite frequently. They might also have a predilection for that too. We could also, you know. Oh, well. Uh, you know, that's all possibly. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah possibly. Mm-hmm. So if you are doing the word of the week challenge, then you can choose either word or maybe bonus points if you include both. Ooh. <laughs> if challenge you, throwing if you, down the gauntlet Valerie that's right you know if you do use the word of the week do let us know we'd love to see you know it in a one of your blog posts or something like that so there we go word of the words of the week this week mm-hmm. predilection and propensity so let's move on then shall we to Don't our miss. writer in residence this week 
Who have you got for us, Valerie? I have Jennifer Hansen. Oh. Yes, author Jennifer Hansen, but Victorians will probably be more familiar with Jennifer Hansen because she, you know, read the 5pm news on Channel 10 for years and years and years. So, um, and she is still a journalist. And uh, so it comes as no surprise that her novel is set in the TV news industry. And it's it's fiction. It's not a memoir. But what Jennifer decided to do, because she's she's you know former co-host of the Channel Ten News and now works regularly in radio on ninety one point five. So she's still heavily involved in the world of media and as a journalist. But she decided at some point that she wanted to try her hand at uh, fiction writing. So this is all about Jennifer's journey. So thanks so much for joining us today, Jennifer. A pleasure, Valerie. Thank you for interviewing me. I think this is wonderful because when you finish a book sometimes and you release (laughs) it into the world, you suddenly think, what now? And so when people actually paid a bit of attention, it's very exciting. (laughs) So actually on that then, when you finish the book, there's obviously a bit of time between when it gets finished and when it gets released out into the world. What did you do? Did you Because you obviously had been working on this book for a while. Did you kind of go, I've got nothing to do now? <laughs> no, because I work in radio and I'm still writing every day, even though it's a journalistic style of writing, which is completely different, uh, there was still plenty to do also in relation to the book. Um, I published it through HarperCollins and immediately the book goes out into the world, they request you do what is called a blog tour, (laughs) which means basically writing a dozen blogs for other people that they post on their websites, which is fabulous to promote the book, but it's quite a lot of work. So I was very very busy doing all of those um, tasks. And also I have a blog myself. So it took me, I think, a month to get my own book launch blog up. (laughs) Oh, wow. Goodness. (laughs) So for readers who haven't read the book yet, tell us what it's about. So the book is called Making Headlines. It's about a television journalist who wants to be a newsreader and all the trials and tribulations along the way. So naturally, because I was a newsreader in a past life with Channel 10, I do have a lot of people say, oh, come on, surely it's an autobiography. Mm. But it definitely isn't. Uh, I think it's a lot more fun writing fiction. I didn't have a stalker and definitely not that many lovers. No, I'm joking. Um, (laughs) uh, It's You know, I think it's... um, It's always good to write about what you know for your first novel. That's what we're always told, the old cliche, but I do think it's very good advice. Uh, For me, that happens to be writing about what was, I suppose, a fairly public job, but Mm. um, most people can get away with writing about what they know about without that kind of accusation. (laughs) (laughs) So at what point during your uh, career did you think, I would like to turn my hand to novel writing? Look, it's always been... At the back of my mind, I think uh, you become a journalist because you love writing and the creative side of it is something I've always delved into. I mean, I've always written a journal or a diary or stories and wanted to write a book. I remember my English literature teacher at school, though, saying you've got to live more of a life before you write a book. Hmm. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think it can help. When I was um, when I left Channel 10, I took up the PWE, Professional Writing and Editing course at RMIT, which I think is absolutely brilliant for anyone starting out. And I, I look back now and think, how did I even think I could write a novel without studying creative writing in some form or another because it is such a different form of writing to journalism Mm. and um, 
It's also a world that's changing so quickly, especially at the moment with, you know, the advent of the internet, even though it's been around for a while, it's you know, really changed the world of publishing and writing genres and styles and uh, techniques. And I just think it's, I've learned so much through doing that course. Um, that was invaluable. And just connecting with other writers was, was wonderful too. And how did the idea for this book form? Like, did it happen over time? Was there a light bulb moment or something that spurred it on? Tell me about that. I think I started dabbling with the idea when I was still at Channel 10. Uh, when I left, I realised for certain legal reasons, I couldn't even write an autobiography where I wanted to because I had to sign a confidentiality agreement when I left. Mm. So um, the best way to write about your experience, I suppose, is to use some parts of it but to make it a story, you know, make it a piece of fiction. And so, uh, yeah, you can please continue. I think, well, I think there are also so many stories that I think things that I experienced as a journalist and in the workplace and heard from other women especially about working in a male-dominated environment that resonated. I, so I wanted to put a, put a book out that touched on those issues without it being preachy mm. in a hit-you-over-the-head feminist time way. I, I'm happy to call myself a feminist, but I, don't, I didn't want it to be a book that was labelled that. I wanted to deal with some issues in a light-hearted way because I think often you can deliver a message um, more easily if it's an entertaining one. Mm. So at the time when it started entering your brain, you know, this might be the beginnings of something, were you taking notes or were we just letting it brew? How did, when did it start forming into actual words and sentences? Look, the first version was written in the first person mm -hmm. and I started, I suppose, thinking it would be a little bit based on, you know, the first day. It, the book as it is now is very different to that, that really first version. Mm. Uh, for, originally it started off as Rachel's first day in the newsroom. Mm. Um, so that all went. In uh, There were so many different edits along the way. But what also happened is as I started writing it, uh, a friend of mine, Bobby Galinsky, who's uh, an American writer and film producer, wanted to read some of it because he thought it sounded interesting. And we, from that, started to turn it into a television series. So we wrote mm. it as a TV series that was then um, uh, put forward and pitched to various uh, publish, uh, sorry, uh, production houses in America, like HBO and Disney, etc. And it did do really well. It got quite high up, but not didn't quite make it through. And as Bobby said recently, maybe now the time is right to pitch again. So that's a possibility. But when you're writing um, a television series, you, of course, turn different events into different um, episodes. So it's almost like each chapter of the book becomes self-contained as its own story. So it was a little bit hard to then convert it back into <laughs> another story. As the TV series, it was set in Atlanta in America. So oh. then I had to go back to being an Australian. So it has been through many different um, forms. <sighs> so that's been interesting. Um, and I think the biggest struggle, I think, was finding what was really my voice mm. in terms of the book without it being autobiographical, without it being too um, – I think also it was quite daunting starting the course at RMIT with, you know, the, this group of people that I perceived to be so much more talented than I was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you write your work and share it in class in a workshop situation, which is quite terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I think when I started out, I was so desperate to impress that I was writing – terribly ponderous long sentences that were very complicated with big words that were completely ridiculous 
and it wasn't the way I tell a story. I was I was desperately you know trying to impress people in a, a silly way. So I had to really par it back and and find a simpler way of telling the story without you know, getting bogged down in all those, uh, you know, I suppose the old, um, the, the other cliche we're also taught all the time is to, you know, show, not tell. Mm. And as a journalist, especially, well, especially in radio, you're telling an audience mm. so they can picture something. It's almost the reverse. You're mm. writing not to tell. You're writing to create a sense of something. So do you find you have to switch gears or change hats? Like do you have to do, you do anything to kind of put yourself into the right zone to to you know show not tell and write creatively as opposed to what you do professionally and and is very much tell information sure i think it's really good to have a break between um work and writing (laughs) what i do now is breakfast radio so it's had to i've had to change my preferred writing methods completely because i used to write late at night which i love doing when the house is quiet having you know family and two kids Mm. that would be and i also don't like having time restrictions if you're writing during the day there could be other appointments or commitments so you're you're you know looking at the clock thinking gee i've got to finish that soon i prefer to write when there's no no um time constraints Mm. Uh, that that's my preference now though doing brekkie radio i will um finish work come home just do some domestics or take the dogs for a walk to have a break before, you know, a couple of hours, maybe even go to the gym and then write later in the afternoon or in the early evening. Then then that sort of – it separates the two. Yeah, yeah. And so you say that the book now is quite different from that first version of Rachel's first day in the newsroom. If you had to take a guess at to, as to the number of drafts that you had to do before wow. you reached the final, <laughs> yeah, can you give us an idea because, you know, yeah. yeah. I think, well – I'd say probably about seven or eight. Seven or eight drafts? Uh, of, of the actual, well, there's more drafts in terms of fine-tuning drafts. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I'd say there was originally the first-person draft before mm. I started RMIT. Then I changed into a different format. Then there was the TV show. Mm. Then I went through um, another f- uh, redrafting in the course, probably two or three within the course of how I would start the book or what kind of character Rachel would be. Um, it changed a little bit. Mm. So I think – and then then I did an edit with um, a writer and editor friend of mine, Anne Bolsch, who, who does editing professionally. So we did our draft before submitting it um, at the world and then when HarperCollins came back, they wanted – a different version so it didn't start at Rachel's first day. So that was another version. So mm. that one was done and then they brought in an editor who did another version and then they wanted another version. So there were three oh for HarperCollins maybe. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it was seven or eight. And even with HarperCollins it was three versions. Yes. And what was I think the most difficult one was the last one and as, you know, everyone tells you the editing process can be painful and I, I, I did struggle with that a bit because being an e-book I don't think publishing houses put as much um, support or uh, advice, you know, into their editing structure there, which, you know, is understandable. It's a shrinking industry and they've got to um, 
work it out as best they can. So what happens with an e-book is that you submit it to HarperCollins. They will generally, they'll come back with some overall advice. So you redo it, then you give them your final draft. They then employ a freelance editor who goes over it, but you don't have any communication with that editor. Mm. She will give you a report which suggests all these changes, but you don't actually have the ability to ring or email or say, but why did you say this? Or mm. and. HarperCollins will say that you don't have to make any of the changes. They leave that to your discretion. But at the same time, as a first-time novelist, I'm thinking, gee, I don't want to be stubborn here. You know, <laughs> they, know, they know better than me. I, I should change it. And someone said maybe, you know, it, it should be like 70-30, take on 70% of what they say but stand your ground on some of the things that really matter to you. Yeah. So I, I think I did that. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to learn. I don't, you know, assume that I know everything by, you know, long shot. Uh, at the same time, there were a couple of things which I, I couldn't budge on uh, yeah. as a journalist. Mm. The very first chapter of the book in the last, the second last draft mm. opened with a much darker scenario where Rachel, as a journalist, was covering the abduction of a young girl who was then found killed. Mm. Um so it was quite confronting, but it was also based on a real-life story that I covered that was mm. very emotional. And they said because they thought of it more as a chiclet-type book, mm. they wanted it to start out with something lighter that it wouldn't – that it would it was too dark for, for what they considered the female audience that would be buying the book. Mm. So I was – and when they suggested changing it at first, they said, why can't Rachel find the little girl alive? I said, well, because that just doesn't happen, sadly. In real life, mm. when little girls are abducted, um, bigger mm. girls who go missing or run away, like 16 plus maybe, but if they're under 12, it's very unlikely. Mm. And sadly, I mean, but I, 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 did, I couldn't change that to make it a happy ending story because it would have been, uh, un, un, you know, it was very unrealistic to do yeah. that. So when you were writing, did you plot the whole thing out already? Did you know most of the key things that were going to happen? Most of the key things I did know because there was so much I wanted to incorporate and, and there were, as I said, there were some that I, uh, personal experiences I drew on, say the um, bombing scene in the book is drawn from the Russell Street bombing, which mm. I was very closely involved in um, because our city office was right around the corner from the Russell Street Police Headquarters, so the window next to me actually shattered in the blast. Mm. So that's actually quite real, that chapter. Um, and... Oh, now I've forgotten the original question. What was <laughs> Did you plot it? Did you, did you yes, plot so it because, out? Yes. So because there were things like that which I really did want to include, I plotted – I had um, pages blue tacked to my wall in the office mm -hmm. pretty much chapter by chapter. Oh. But at the same time, I did allow when – the writing took you down a different path because I do think the characters can take over and things can happen or ideas, fresh ideas can come to you in the middle of writing. And, I, you know, I do also keep a notepad by my bed because sometimes, you know, things happen, you wake up and think of something and you've got to write it down or you, you won't remember it. Mm -hmm. So I was open to change but I did like having a a guide at least and I think that's much more helpful to do that from the beginning well I'm the sort of person who's quite organized and yeah, do, right. I, I like to know where I'm heading I think mm -hmm. and they do advise that in, in in writing class as well because otherwise you can just be heading down this long and winding road that's leading nowhere and mm -hmm. I think you really it's a good idea to have a, an idea of where it's going to end. Mm. When you f first started writing it did you decide that you were going to write in the genre of chiclet or commercial women's fiction or did you just kind of just 
started writing a story. <laughs> I look, I just, as I said, I suppose when I first started writing, it was a lot more uh, sombre, word heavy, serious. Mm. I was trying to be more literary, mm-hmm. which um, not like in a Tim Winton sense, but more towards that vein of writing. But I just found because the voice of Rachel as a young woman had to be contemporary, that it just wasn't going to work. It just really had to be a chiclet style book. And I also felt it would reach a wider audience if it was written in that style. Do you feel that you found your voice? Because you say, were saying that, you know, you, you had to do that when you first started writing. I do. I do. I'm, I'm a little bit sad that it's not as intelligent and as literary <laughs> as some of my wonderful writer friends. And like my stepsister, Sean Pryor, who wrote the memoir, Shy, you know, her writing mm. is so beautiful. So, and Alsa Piper, who's another friend, they're writing writing is on another level and I can see that and um, I know I do aspire to that maybe with another novel down the track but I mean I've already started writing another book which um, is still probably more of your easy to read type literature than the literary style. Okay so can you tell us what that's going to be about? Yes, it's called Black Angels. It was originally actually also written as a movie because I did screenwriting at RMIT as well. And um, uh, another director friend of mine in the US said he loved the movie idea but he thought I should try and have it written as a book first. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, everyone keeps pointing me back to the book, which is fine, but this is uh, much – it's, I suppose, a different genre in that it's like a – sci-fi or supernatural romance Ooh. more along the lines of a twilight or a not not harry potter but you know that it, it, there's a lot of a there's an imaginary world a fictitious world yeah now you mentioned that when you were writing you'd do breakfast radio then you'd come home and then you know you kind of wrote in the uh late afternoons or early evenings and, yep. and how long approximately do you think it took you with that routine to write the book I had plenty of breaks because I suppose um, my career had a few different turns after I left 10. I worked at the ABC for a bit and then I was doing a column for the Herald Sun, now Brecky Radio, plus I have a family and there was a little bit of travel in between with uh, my husband who's an actor and goes to England uh, a bit so you know, I'd go over there with him mm-hmm. so there were some there were definitely breaks in writing the wonderful thing of course about writing is you can take your laptop with you and continue it's just a bit harder though if you're on the fly traveling mm-hmm. I think to get it into that mindset um I do, I do like writing when I'm away from home but I feel more comfortable in my office and I think it's a bit easier when you've got your you know your plot lines on your wall mm-hmm. and it's all you all your familiar things around you it's it's a better space for me to write in I think it would have taken all up I've said between eight and ten years probably for all of the drafts yeah yeah Mm -hmm. from the very first draft sure how long do you think it took you for the first draft (sighs) probably I suppose there was a break between when I started at RM, between starting the book and when I started at RMIT, there was quite a big gap because then we were working on the TV series. So I would say I'd start it, I really do start the official um, time frame probably from when I began the course at RMIT. So I'd say um, probably from 2008 to about the first draft would have been 2013. Okay. Yeah. And so, what do you think was the hardest thing about writing this novel? I think the last draft was the most difficult because I'd sent 
I'd made a lot of changes after I'd uh, been given the the report from the first the editor from HarperCollins, and I made a lot of I felt compromises in terms of storyline and characters. Mm. And I was about I was down the shops, and I was about half an hour away from coming home and sending out an email to all my friends and family about a book launch. I decided to have a book launch, even though it's I shouldn't say it, but I can't help it. I still have the self dialogue inside my head going it's only an e-book you know <laughs> but I, I still wanted to celebrate so I had it planned I, you know so I'm going to be really positive I'm going to have a party I'm going to do it and I was literally had the, the email plotted out on my computer and was about to push send when I had another call from Mary Rennie at HarperCollins saying Jennifer I've just decided after looking at it one more time we need to go over it again <gasps> really and I nearly burst. I literally burst into tears. I think. <laughs> oh no! She said, "No, I think there's still too many characters, and uh, it's a bit confusing for the reader." And I think, um, yeah. So when you get rid of characters, of course, that has a domino effect throughout yeah. the book. So, oh, and that was a very intense period because I was so determined to have it finished and so yeah. sick of it going on for so long. Yeah. So I'd be working it. At work, you know, a six, six, seven-hour day on the t- on the computer. Mm. Come home and do another six or seven hours. I actually developed a shoulder injury oh, no. <laughs> from your right hand going back and forth on yep. the mouse all day. Mm. Um, but I did get it finished to, to the deadline. Uh, but as with every book, apparently there is one mistake I found in making <laughs> headlines. So I'm a bit annoyed about that. I'm a bit of a pedant when it comes <laughs> to word repetition, or it's not a, not a mistake spelling wise but it's a word repetition which I'm not happy with and you can't fix it <laughs> so with when you redraft do you actually start from scratch or do you how does how do you how did you approach your redrafts with the last redraft, yes, because it involved changing the first chapter completely. So that was starting from scratch and taking out uh, – also Mary wanted a couple of characters to go. Um, so that was that was tough. Um, I took the advice on and did it. I still – I don't know. I'd have to get someone to read both drafts to tell me if I made the right choice or not. It's always a tough one. What's the most rewarding thing about writing a novel? Then. Don't say the end. <laughs> oh, no, the no, end. no, no. I think the most rewarding is now that it's been out there for a couple of months and mm. I'm finally getting some feedback from people, even strangers, um, also people I admire and respect as writers, to have them say they've really enjoyed the book is wonderful. And even my older brother, for instance, who... As a bloke, I thought he might find it a bit too chick-litty, but he really loved it and he felt, in fact, that it was marketed the wrong way, that the cover is too light and breezy, that it should be a more serious um, image. Mm-mm. Why the change to sci-fi? That's really quite different. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Mm. It was a story that came to me, and this is going to sound a bit weird, it was a dream. <laughs> so I woke up and thought, wow, I just had this image of a, um, an amazingly strong female character who was dressed like a black angel, and I just thought that looks amazing. And 
we can do something with this in this story. Do you know, the funny thing is when I went to, I had a meeting at Warner Brothers in Hollywood about this script mm-hmm. and not long after that, Maleficent came out. Oh, right. <laughs> so I always, I take credit and say they stole my story. Of course. <laughs> but it, it's it's a long bow between when you just have a dream about somebody who dresses as a dark angel, um, then yep. a black angel, then... Um, actually writing an entire oh, sure, story. Sure, so sure. How did you then you know Well then I thought, um why I, I I thought a black angel, why why would there be a black angel? And then I thought, well you know what? Actually heaven could be a little boring. <laughs> so maybe this is a world where there are some rebel angels who've decided to bugger this, let's go make life a bit more interesting. And maybe they still want to connect with people on planet Earth. Oh, that's great. I love it. All right. So now that you're working on this and it's your second novel, yeah. yes. um, is your writing routine very similar to what it was with the last one? Because obviously you, you're not going to take eight to, similar. eight to that ten is, years. My writing routine is very spasmodic and ad hoc and all over the place. Yes. <laughs> I tend to sometimes at the moment I've been having a bit of a break and then when I start writing again, it's very intense. So it's a bit like I'm an all-or-nothing writer. Yeah, okay. And what's your advice, finally, for aspiring writers who hope to, you know, be able to write their first novel? I think write... Well, I think the most important thing is to find your own voice. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to impress people. Just write for the love of it Mm. and that uh, you shouldn't really... Right. I, uh, I know some writers who think they're going to you know, do the next Harry Potter and be squillionaires and you, you just shake your head and think, no, that's not why you do it. I think you do it because you love it, because you're trying to connect with an audience. It's wonderful getting great feedback from people after you've finished a book, but you're not, you shouldn't be writing with dollar signs in your eyes. <laughs> wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Jennifer. Thanks, Valerie. It's been lovely chatting. There you go, Jennifer Hansen, and you know another example of it's it's discipline, isn't it? You just it gotta, is absolutely yeah. discipline, and I do love the kind of blurring of the fact and fiction line as yes. well. I think it would be a really interesting read, and I think there'd probably be a lot of people reading it who are oh, yes. looking for themselves. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now let's move on to our app pick for the week. This is a shout out to Ken who brought it to my attention, and this is. Plot Generator, and we'll put the link in the show notes, but you can find it at plot-generator.org.uk. And it's just really fun because what you do is you can choose to generate like an entire short story or a movie script, and so you select what the kind of thing you you want, and then you can say, you can give, um, uh, you, you write in the name of your protagonist, you can choose the kind of opening scene, you can choose whether the conflict is emotional or violent or financial so there's a whole list of drop down menus and you can also fill in the names of your characters and choose whether they're male or female and you know locations and stuff and then you play, you press um, uh, the write me a story <laughs> and it will write you a story so it's it's just a bit of fun really if you want to while away a Saturday afternoon generating random stories that may or may not make a lot of sense <laughs> we can't vouch for the validity of the sense. No, exactly. (laughs) But let's move on to our working writers tip this week, Al. 
Uh, this is quite an interesting one. This came out of the hashtag write a book with Al uh, sort of challenge. Yeah. Um, and it's from my Facebook page. Um, and it's a, it's a question from Isabel Duncan. And she says, my brain can't decide which novel it wants to write first. <laughs> Ugh, any suggestions? Yeah. And this is an interesting thing because I think, you know, there's, there's the writer's block that comes from having no ideas. And then there's the writer's block that comes from having too many ideas where you're just overwhelmed and you don't know where to start. So uh, my suggestion with, with this kind of thing is that um, you, if you've already started something, yeah. do that. Yeah. If this is just shiny new ideas, because shiny new ideas always look easier than what you're working on. So if it's just shiny new ideas, um, you just simply take that idea, you write it down somewhere, open a Word document, put it in a notebook, whatever it is that you do, and then you put it aside and you concentrate on the thing that you have started and you finish it. Because the only way that you are ever going to learn to finish a novel is to finish a novel. So... That's my first thing. If it's actually you sitting here with like three, what you think are three great ideas and you don't know which one to do first, um, again, my idea with that would be to open a document for all three of those things. You write down every single thing that you can think of that would relate to each idea and then you choose the one that resonates the most with you at this time. Yeah. That's the only advice I can give you is the one that exci- you want to write the thing that excites you the most. The thing that you think is going to get you through 60 to 100,000 words because we are talking about a lot of words. Yeah. So which of these ideas has got enough in it and excites you enough to take you through that many words? And that's the thing you start working on. Absolutely. And if you kid yourself into thinking that you're equally excited about all three. You're not. <laughs> well, what you'd, you know, be really honest with yourself. And if you mm-hmm. really believe that, then look at all of the stuff that you have written down and go to the one that is closest to being finished, like where you've got the whole plot written out, whereas the others maybe you've only got you've only thought about three quarters or something like that so always be finishing yeah always be finishing that is such good advice Valerie yeah maybe finish damn book yes (laughs) maybe someone will turn it into a little square this week like a Oh, are you looking for a quote? I'm looking for a quote. That's because I'm too up on you, isn't it? Exactly I've got none (laughs) okay (laughs) all right so uh What's our platform building tip this week? Oh, this is a great tip. This comes from janefriedman.com. And this is a, so Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And this year, Jane is someone that we have spoken about before. She has a fantastic website full of terrific links on all manner of posts and all sorts of stuff, all manner of publishing related um, things. But she, this particular post caught my eye because I think this is something that authors it's an area where authors often make a mistake. And what she basically says, and I will give you the headline, when less is more on social media. Mm. Very, very important. It is, a, it is actually a guest post by Chris Syme on the site, but it is a fantastic post because this is something that I always talk about in my author, build, uh, author building platform, <laughs> author platform building course, is the fact that you don't want to try to be everywhere. Yes. If you try to be everywhere, you will be nowhere. It's yes. as simple as that. Yes. When it comes to social media, don't try to be everywhere. Start with one thing, see how it goes. What you're looking for is something that you enjoy doing, that you find relatively easy, and that you are getting engagement on, yes. where people are talking back to you, where you feel like you are making networks, where you feel like you are actually making some inroads. 
If you try to be everywhere, particularly all at once in your first five minutes, you're not going to get that. No. You won't get it. And then you'll be disgruntled and you'll be disappointed and you'll be thinking this is not working for me and I can't do this and all of those sorts of things that people do. And people say to me, oh, but Alison, you're here and you're there. But I, I have never done all of these things all at once. I started with one thing and then I added another and I added another. And some of the things that I tried, I don't do anymore because they weren't, work, they weren't working for me. I do the things that work for me. Absolutely. So that's a fantastic uh, tip and it's definitely well worth having a read of that particular um, blog post on the Jane Friedman site. And, of course, we'll put that link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Hmm. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode, Al. What are you doing in the coming week? Uh, well, we're still in social, uh, social media. We're still in Hello. Oh, well, the, the dogs have gone crazy. <laughs> they're, they're excited. They're just excited for me. They, they, they certainly are. So, um, <laughs> we're still in, uh, we're still in school holidays. So I'm, I'm just writing where I can. That's basically it. What about you, Valerie? Uh, I think I need dogs. to go wrangle the crazy dogs. So <laughs> we might need to wrap up. Uh, they're going to go nuts. Okay. So, sorry, everyone. Right. Got to run. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening and we'll chat to you again next week. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>